0: Good morning everyone. God has given us the privilege of another day and thus we take this time to engage our minds in the things which he has revealed, which would come to pass, and the fulfillment of them. And this will confirm our faith in the certainty of his word. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Bless us now and open our minds, open our hearts and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, Amen. Jesus said in John 4 and verse 23, The true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. Notice that this is a very prevalent theme in the Scriptures in spirit and in truth. In other words, God can only accept that worship which is guided and inspired by His Spirit and which embraces His truth. The Bible is very straightforward on this point. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is called by Jesus the Spirit of Truth. John sixteen thirteen. 13 When He, the Spirit of Truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. Notice that He guides us into all truth and also shows us things to come. So then the Holy Spirit Is the Spirit of Truth, which is also the Spirit of Prophecy, as He it is that gives us an understanding in the things which are to come. Hence, therefore, from a simple analysis of the two texts which we have mentioned above, John four twenty-three, where it says that worship to God must be in spirit and in truth, and that God accepts such worship, and John sixteen thirteen, which tells us that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth, which guides us into all truth and shows us things to come, from a simple analysis of these two texts, therefore, we can safely conclude then that true and acceptable worship to God is worship that is under the control and the direction of His Spirit and that is established upon the truth of His Word, in spirit and in truth. It is obvious then that outside of these parameters, there is much that can be called worship. That may not be worshiped to God. Now, this is not to condemn or to judge the worship of anyone, that is God's prerogative. This is merely to simply point out what the Bible is saying to us, and this is important for a number of reasons, dear listener, one of which I will just make mention of at this point. Jesus again tells us in plain language that up ahead in the future, there will be a grim and shocking realization for many. And note the word many, because that is the word he uses. A shocking realization for many who were engaged in the motions of religion and worship and doing things that, to the untrained eye, would seem like they were doing that which was pleasing to him. Things which would appear as true worship to God. But he goes on to say it will be a rude awakening when these many discover that they themselves and their worship has been rejected by him. They had locked themselves out of his kingdom. Despite appearances which seemed convincing to others, they had become self-deceived and were merely going through the motions and the formalities of religion while representing another kingdom other than the kingdom of God. Notice his words, the words of Jesus. Matthew 7 from verse 15 onwards. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? In other words, you don't go to a thorn bush to get grapes, do you? The obvious answer is no. You go to a grapevine to get grapes. And so too with figs. You don't go to a hedge of thistles for figs. No, you go to a fig tree. That is the obvious answer from the question that Jesus is asking. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 17 continues. It says, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, but neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. In other words, he is using symbolic language, the metaphor of fruit trees, to say that that which does not produce fruit that he can accept will ultimately be taken down and burned in the fire. And verse 20, Matthew 7 wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. These are the words of Jesus. Now what is all this about? Good trees and corrupt trees, good fruit and evil fruit, trees ending up in the fire. What is Jesus getting at here with all this figurative language? Well, in the very next verse, he goes on to make it clear in unmistakable language what he's really talking about. That he's talking about people who claim to be worshippers of him who call upon His name, who profess a certain outward devotion to Him, and are engaged in the rituals and motions of religion and religious matters. Notice as He continues speaking, Matthew seven twenty one. 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Notice that there is a saying which is contrasted with a doing. Jesus is saying that there will be those who say unto me, but there are those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. He's saying that there will be those who have made a practice of worship which amounts to nothing but lip service. They will say the right sounding things, but their heart is not broken into obedience to him to do the right things. There is a saying and there is a doing. He is not by any means saying that anyone is saved by their doing, no. We are saved by the doing of Jesus Christ for us. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, as Adam, even so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So we are saved by the obedience of Christ. So it is the doing of Christ, the obedience of Christ that saves us. So why then does he say, not those who say unto me, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven will be in the kingdom? Why? Because the proof, dear listener, the evidence that we have truly accepted the doing of Christ by which we are saved is the fact that his obedience will be reflected in the life of those who truly have accepted him in other words the obedience of the master naturally will be reflected as obedience in his followers also so he is telling us what is it that guards us from becoming self deceived getting to a situation where we are locked into believing that we are his and in his kingdom when we are not notice what he says next and don't miss the word many Matthew 7, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name we have cast out devils, and in your name have done many wonderful works. In other words, these are people who were for many years busily engaged in the motions of religious services and religious observances. They were convinced that they were on the right side. And some of the things that they were doing even served to confirm them that they were working for God, that they were being used by His Spirit and doing great things in His name. But notice the shocking answer of Jesus which follows. Using language that is straightforward, simple and direct, here is what He says. And then will I profess, I will say unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, you that work iniquity. They say, we have done many things in your name. We have prophesied in your name. Jesus, depart from me. You are working iniquity. Just think. Don't miss also, Jesus uses the word many. And the word many is always used in contrast with the word few. The many and the few. And we see this further confirmed in earlier verses of the same chapter, Matthew seven thirteen to 14. It says, Enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who go in that way. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. So we see there the many and the few again. Now is it really possible that the majority be so wrong? Following a path fully convinced that they are on the right track and that their worship is acceptable to God, only to find out in the end that it is rejected and they themselves are rejected also? Well, if it is not possible, then Jesus must be a liar because he says that it will happen and we know that Jesus is no liar. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. John fourteen six. And he says, the spirit of truth bears witness of me, John 16 verse 15. So this will be the reality in the end, dear friends. These words should lead us into deep, prayerful self-examination, deep heart-searching. Because it is easy to read these words and just take them lightly. But Jesus is the truth. He cannot lie. Titus 1-2 says, God cannot lie. And so in strict integrity, he tells us things exactly as they will be so that we can evaluate and introspect and seek to ensure that we are on the right path before it's too late. This tells us that there is danger in following popular religion. There is danger in following the crowd, dear friends. Each person must know for him or herself and make a decision for the right. Comes what may. In the time of Noah, just a few people went into the ark, Noah and his family. To the majority, they looked foolish. They were mocked and laughed at, and all the good sounding reasons were given as to why it was impossible for rain to come from the sky. It had never happened before. But seven days after they were in the ark, and the reveling and mocking and everything was going on on the outside. Then after seven days, the reveling and partying and mocking stopped because a few small drops of water started just sprinkling from the skies. Suddenly, there was silence. There were looks of consternation on each face. Every mind echoed the same question. Could it be that we were wrong? Genesis 7.23 sums it all up by telling us that the flood came and took them all away. And only Noah and his family were left. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be again. The many were wrong, but the faithful few were on the right track. Well, from Genesis 7, we now turn to Daniel chapter 7, the chapter we have been studying for a few weeks now. Daniel 7 and verse 25. Thus far we have seen that the little horn, the religious power that came up out of the Roman Empire, would be a counterfeit of true Christianity. It would take certain things of the Christian faith and intermingle them with paganism, pagan heathen beliefs and practices, and dress them up in such a way that many will be fooled. We also saw that it would have alliances with the governments of the nations, quietly, behind the scenes, pulling the strings, which will cause most people who are not diligent students of the Scriptures to not realize or recognize its role in everything that is going on in the world. We saw also that it will also hide itself behind false teachings which would be made up by changing and twisting the Word of God and using its influence to get these false teachings Infiltrated into the Christian churches to corrupt the belief systems of the people, keeping them in darkness to the truth. And that many will accept these and teach these, not knowing the very source of them. We also saw that it is a religious power that it would blaspheme against God and wear out the saints or persecute the true people of God all of which has happened many times throughout history. Millions have been killed by this system using the powers of kings. And this persecution is happening still in many parts of the world even today. And it will come to our part of the world in due time. So then it is a religious power whose agenda is to corrupt and destroy true Christianity while putting on a show and making a pretense of serving the God of true Christianity. A system which is being used by Satan to oppose the kingdom of Christ and eradicate his people on earth, while it claims to be serving Christ and working for the kingdom of Christ. Hence it is called Antichrist. Daniel 7.25 says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, And shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and laws. Notice the word think. He shall think to change times and laws. This means that God has instituted times and laws at creation, and even though men will come and in pompous arrogance seek to impose upon others changes to what God has fixed in place, in reality, these changes are own in men's self-deceived minds. But as far as God is concerned, what he has put in place remains. Hence, he shall think to change times and laws. God had put in place two systems of time reckoning as far as seasons are concerned. In the Old Testament, a religious calendar was instituted governing everything in that area of religion and worship. And also an agricultural calendar which governed the seasons of planting and reaping, etc. By the early 8th century, the Roman emperor Julius Caesar instituted certain calendar changes which resulted in the Julian calendar which was put in place. And this was used for hundreds of years until in October of 1582, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth changed the calendar again, replacing the Julian calendar with the Gregorian calendar, which is the same one that we use today. So it's been in use for over five, almost 500 years now, the Gregorian calendar. But Daniel 7.25 goes way beyond just calendar changes. It says the power of Antichrist, when it arises, will seek to change times and laws, meaning God's times and God's laws, God's law as it relates to time. If you will take a look at the Ten Commandments of God in the Bible, you will notice that the second commandment forbids the worship of graven images. But Roman Catholicism is a religion which is heavily involved in statues and images of dead persons who are called saints and who the devotees are required to pray to. So when you look at the Catholic version of the Ten Commandments, You will notice that the second commandment, which forbids making images and worshipping them, is taken out. The second commandment is nowhere to be found in their version of the Ten Commandments. So what do they do to get back ten? Well, the Tenth Commandment in the Bible says we should not covet our neighbor's goods or our neighbor's wife. So they take this Tenth Commandment and split it in two. And they make covet our neighbor's goods one and covet our neighbor's wife a separate commandment. So by taking out the second commandment which forbids the worship to idols, leaving nine, and by dividing into two the tenth commandment which forbids covetousness, they still end up with ten. And I will post an example in the chat below. So you can see for yourself. This is something that everyone and anyone can look up for themselves online and use the Bible as a reference to what God gave. Now the next fulfillment of Antichrist trying to change God's times and laws concerns God's law dealing with a specific time. Now I can understand that this is an area that some people may be sensitive about and may not even want to hear about. But the truth must be given, and that's all I'm called to do, give the truth. And each conscience must be left to accept or reject it by personal choice. After all, all are ultimately answerable to God in the judgment. The most glaring area of change as it concerns the law of God is the change in the fourth commandment. And this commandment found in Exodus 28-11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servants, your livestock, your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In other words, he sanctified it set it apart for holy use. Now, there is a bit of history concerning this commandment at which many people prefer to kind of stick their finger in their ears and plug their ears against hearing. Not you, necessarily. But yet many people do. I know this, in fact, firsthand. But the history is clear for all to know. In 321 AD, eight years after the emperor Constantine came to power, he made a law forbidding worshipping and work from being done on the first day of the week. As mentioned in last week's study, he was seeking to merge Christianity with paganism in order to stabilize and unite the empire and secure his reign in power. Tracing all the way back to Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, just after the flood and the world started becoming populated again, And they tried to build the Tower of Babel. The first day of the week was the day always dedicated to the worship of the sun. It was during this time that they started worshipping the sun itself. Sun worship developed. Hence the Romans later came along and in naming the days called it Sunday, the day dedicated to the sun. In fact, the very first sentence of Constantine's law, which was passed on March 321 AD, states, and I quote, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest, and let all workshops be closed. End of quote. This is the very first sentence of that law. And it was just the beginning of a process which made more and more changes in exalting over time, gradually exalting the first day while suppressing and making it illegal to worship on the seventh day. Until at one famous church council held in the city of Laodicea in 364 AD called the Council of Laodicea, when all the religious heads and bishops of the Roman Empire were gathered, it was finally decreed that the official day of worship for the Christian church from there onwards would now be on the first day of the week. All of this is history that anyone who cares to know can find out for themselves. Now I have never opened up controversy on this subject and yet I've found myself in many situations, in many venues dealing with this matter of the change of the fourth commandment. Why? Because even while minding my own business, people have come up to me and challenged me on the matter. I've been in my office and people come in and challenge me on that matter. And various texts of scripture are often used in an attempt to show that this is a legitimate change by God. But over and over I have had to set the record straight showing that is not so, and how the scriptures are being used to support something which is sometimes the very opposite of what they're actually saying. But that is neither my purpose nor my burden here today. I just want to share a few quotations from the horse's mouth, concerning what much of history itself confirms to be true. All of these quotations from official sources of the same system. Notice, this is from the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 4, page 153. It says, the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath, or seventh day of the week, to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Why the third commandment? Because when you take out number two, number four drops down to number three on your list. But notice it says the Jewish Sabbath. Nowhere does the Bible ever call it the Jewish Sabbath. Just the Sabbath or the Sabbath of the Lord thy God or my holy day as we see in Isaiah 58, as God himself says. But saying it was the Jewish Sabbath, was part of the labeling and branding that was necessary to stigmatize the institution and undermine it. Another quote. This is from the Roman Decretal. A Decretal is essentially a paper letter giving a decision on a point of question of doctrinal law in the Roman church. And it says here from the Roman Decretal, it says, speaking of the Pope, it says, He can pronounce sentences and judgments in contradiction to the rights of nations and to the law of God and man. He can free himself from the commands of the apostles because he is their superior and from the rules of the Old Testament. The Pope has the power to change times and abrogate laws or end laws and to dispense with all things in other words to do away with all things even the precepts of christ that's from the roman decretal another quote this is from the book canon and tradition page 263 another official publication of the roman church It says the authority of the churches could therefore not be bound to the authority of the scriptures because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by command of Christ, but by its own authority. Canon and Tradition, page 263. This is from Facts for the Times, page 55 to 56, written by Pope Nicholas, 1893. Another official publication. It says the Pope's will stands for reason. He can dispense above the law and of wrong make right by correcting and changing laws. The next quotation is in the form of question and answer and is found in the Convert's Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. Page 50, written in 1957. This is given to new converts. It's in a question-answer format. It says, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. This is from the Convert's Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, page 50. Just to share a few more, this is from the Catholic Record, September 1, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority. The Church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of this fact. End of quote. This one is from the Catholic World, March 1894, page 809. Another official publication. It says, speaking of the church, She took the pagan Sunday and made it the Christian Sunday. And thus the pagan Sunday dedicated to Balder became the Christian Sunday dedicated to Jesus. Another official source. This is from the American Sentinel, June 1893, Father Enright, Catholic Church spokesman. He says here, The Bible says, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. The Catholic Church says, no, by my divine power, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep holy the first day of the week. And the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. End of quote. Another quotation from the Catholic Press, August 25, 1900. Another official publication. It says, Sunday is a Catholic institution and its claims to observance can be defended only on Catholic principles. From the beginning to the end of scripture, there is not a single passage which warrants the transfer of weekly public worship from the last day to the first. Look. They themselves admit to the change. They admit that there's absolutely no evidence in scripture to support a change. And yet you have people trying to twist the Bible to say this is saying that and that is saying that. That is why you can offer a million dollars. Others have done it. You can offer a billion dollars to anyone who can prove from the Bible that God endorsed a change of the Sabbath. Because you know what? You don't have to pay it out. You won't have to because there is absolutely no biblical evidence to support such a claim. It was made by man who long before God had prophesied would come along and think to change God's times and God's laws. But just one more and then I'll wrap up. This is from the Catholic Mirror, December 23, 1893. Reason and common sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives. Either Protestantism and keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicism and keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. That is their word. So the Bible says that this entity would speak great words against the Most High, would lift itself up above God and all that is called God, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He would persecute the people of God. He would seek to change God's time and God's laws. Daniel 7.25 Then verse 26 says, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So understand, dear friends, that men will do what men will do. But every single person living on this planet is tested in terms of their allegiance, their loyalty. To whom will it be? To whom will we give our loyalty? To man or to God? This will be the final test. That will determine everyone's destiny in the crisis that is preparing to come upon the world. Each one will have to make a choice. This gets seriously interesting because within a short time, and I can't say exactly how short, but things are developing right now, even in Congress in this nation and around the world, which is bringing to the forefront things I'm talking about right now. And yes, people will be persecuted again. And this time it will be over something that this power of Antichrist says it is our mark of our authority. It says Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of this fact from the Catholic record. I just want to say, dear friends, that I can't change anyone's mind about anything. I'm just a messenger, I'm just here to proclaim the truth in love, leaving each person free to do what they choose to do with it, knowing that ultimately we are all answerable to God. I love you all, dear friends, and I pray that each one will take these messages and go to God for themselves and say, Heavenly Father, are these things so? It is my hope and my prayer that each one will recognize the Heightened importance of these things and the times to which we've come. It's a time of decision that the world is approaching and our decisions will have far-reaching effects. May God help us to be clear in our understanding, to be clear in our thinking and to make the right choice for him, for Christ, for truth. Because Christ says, I am the truth. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. May God watch over your families and keep you. Until our next program, God bless you all.